Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Not a great deal of admin off the top from me today because Robin uh, actually managed to cover a little bit in the episode. So that's good news for everybody involved. I will say, though, that episode two of An Uncanny Hour is out now, our exclusive to Patreon podcast documentary series that takes a look at the weird and the wonderful and the counterculture. And this episode looks at Hawkwind in the 1970s, the space rock group that were really the definition of the counterculture for a lot of people in the 70s. And in that episode, we talk to Alan Moore and Stuart Lee and Stacia Blake from Hawkwind and Stephen Morris from Joy Division and prog rock journalist Joe Kendall, musician Jane Weaver author of a new book about Hawkwind, Joe Banks as well. So if you sign up to the Book Shambles Patreon, you will get exclusive access to that new series. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. If you can't support us on Patreon, you can support us by liking and subscribing and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, especially five-star ratings. They really help us out. Now let's move on to this week's episode. Unfortunately, Josie had to drop out at the last second before we recorded this episode, but is with one of the most requested guests uh, we've had for the show since we've been started. So many people uh, have told us that The Five by Hallie Rubenhold was the best book they read in the last couple of years. So we finally managed to get schedules lined up, and our guest today is the author of The Five, Hallie Rubenhold. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, unfortunately, Josie is uh, unable to join us now. She was going to be with us today, uh, but she will be back very, very soon. Quick couple of things to tell you. One that is on the 12th of December, because we've had to cancel all of our live Christmas shows and the show that I'd normally do with Brian Cox at Hammersmith uh, Apollo, we're going to do a 24-hour science variety show. Uh, We've got the first 50 guests uh, confirmed, which includes Sophie Ellis-Bexter and Chris Hadfield and uh, and, and Brian Cox and Helen Sharman and uh, it's a it's a very long list actually so go to cosmicshambles.com if you'd like to be part of that uh, we're going to do it as I said 24 hour show I should be hosting the whole thing and at my age I don't know if I can manage that but I'll give it a darn good go it'll be an interesting psychological spectacle and uh, also the other thing is uh, that uh, if you support us via, pa- via Patreon thank you so much for supporting us via Patreon if you can support us and you don't as yet that will be fantastic we only get about 1% of our listeners who are able to support us if we can get that to 5% uh, especially because none of our live work exists anymore. That will make a huge difference. And now, on with the show. And uh, now, this book that we're going to be talking about today, uh, quite often I put up pictures of me reading books and people say, I love that book, that was a great book. Uh, well, I wasn't really sure about it. This, I would say, is a book that has had the most universal love and appreciation of any book so far this year that uh, I've put a photo up of or, or, or been reading. And you, many of you will probably have read this book already because it has also sold an enormous number and it's one of those books that both sells and is then read as well, not one of those ones that is merely placed out uh, to say, oh, I have that book. It's uh, it's The Five by Hallie Rubenhold and um, it is... 
It's a Hanley. I've got to say, this is a, for for those who don't know. This is the story of the of 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 the five women who who were murdered by by Jack the Ripper, and it is an incredible game changer. I want to start off with it because a friend of mine was saying he was he was reading this book, and he was also reading Bruce Robinson's book about Jack the Ripper, and then he just stopped Bruce Robinson's book because he said, "I'm not interested anymore," because you've by showing us the lives of the people that he murdered by showing us the lies that we've had about them by showing the myths that were built around them the more comforting myths that were built around them and the kind of myths we still see now with with when when women are murdered um he said it just for him now he could never be bothered to read a book about jack the ripper because that's not an interesting story that's not the story that tells us something about the world that's great. I mean, that's a result as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that, you know, uh, not to do down all of those people who, who have written books, but, you know, uh, on, on the subject, but Jack Ripper has had his day in the sun. I mean, we have we have fetishized him. We have talked about Jack Ripper. We've talked about these murders for 132 years. I mean, certainly now it's time to shine a light on the victims. It's time to have their stories told and it's time to kind of readjust the focus. So, you know, in the past, it's always been the story of Jack the Ripper starts with the deaths of these women. And I think what I wanted to do with my book was to actually show it's much bigger than that, first of all. But, uh, you know, and they were real people. But it readjusts, as I said, the focus because their lives are, if we start the story with their lives and who they were, then suddenly it's like you take the sting out of out of the story. You take, you stop making it be about their deaths. It's about the, their lives and the conditions in which they lived and, and the way the Victorian system worked and, and how it was punitive and how it punished the poor and how it punished women. And, and then Jack Ripper becomes almost like a footnote in his own story because of that. Yeah, it's it's such a. I mean, one of the things that when I read it, which first just astonishes me, is that you were able to build up such vivid pictures of people, people who uh, were very often some of them, you know, in the margins of society, some some of them a little bit further, but but people who not not the celebrities, not the people who have statues uh, put up for them. You have managed to create incredibly full lives. I mean, the number of details. It seems like it, it, that that achievement alone. What what was the greatest struggle in terms of, I mean, you, you, there must have been someone where you just thought, I just can't find the way in, I can't find the document, I can't find the records. Well, that's Mary Jane Kelly, because Mary Jane Kelly is the one we know the least about, and we will never know anything about Mary Jane Kelly, simply because she was, she was the final victim. And she's the one who's the most mythologized as well. And, and the reason for that is she was the youngest. She's the only one who is a confirmed sex worker. Um, and so therefore she's very sexualized and she was the most brutally murdered as well. So those three things together, you know, incredibly titillating, you know, beautiful, young, sexual woman, brutally murdered. Um, but the frustrating thing about that is that her name was almost certainly not Mary Jane Kelly. Um, it was an, an alias that she adopted and, and women who worked in the sex industry at that time constantly changed their names. Um, she worked in the, West End, in the West End and lived in Knightsbridge and was 
in the higher echelons of sex work uh, before she, and it certainly looks like from the evidence, was trafficked to Paris um, and then returned from, from Paris uh, and was, was hiding out in, in the East End. And I believe that's when she changed her name. Because when she died, um, you know, the newspapers all over the world had her name and the story of her life in it. And not a single person came forward, unlike all of the other women. Not one single person. And, um, you know, the police went and looked for her. She said she had been from Wales. She said she had been from Ireland. Uh, the police went and they looked for relatives in both of those places. They found nothing. They found nobody who knew a Mary Jane Kelly. Nobody has ever been able to find her in the records. So that is deeply, deeply frustrating because you can't really get your teeth into something like that. So the way in which you tell the story is you tell it as she told it and you look at what exactly it was that she was saying about herself and and what you find what i find is that she spun different stories she told different people different things so we to put people off the scent presumably um and to reinvent herself um but the, the things i was able to ascertain about her which i think is very interesting is that you in the in the victorian era you can't hide your class background you behave as you were brought up and taught to behave. And certainly the way Mary Jane Kelly conducts herself and, and the fact that she was educated certainly demonstrates that she was from the middle classes. And she ended up in high class prostitution and, and usually it was through uh, the middle classes, middle class women did end up in high class prostitution. That was, you know, their, their way in. Um, and so it was very hard to find information about her. It was very frustrating, but I did the best I could do. When did you first get the, 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 the realisation that there was such a story to tell? About, about these five women when, when we, how far back does it go for you as a historian that that sense that um in particular the the, the women of so much history in so many different areas that, that their story is very often just missed out altogether oh god it's i think it's one of those things that i've i found increasingly as a historian you know you just find that the most interesting people um are the ones who aren't don't have books written about them um, uh, you know, I, I find ordinary people very interesting because their lives were always anything but ordinary, you know, um, and I think every person is like a sort of core sample of the time in which they live. So like take any one of us, for example, you know, um, somebody in 100, 200 years can study our lives and learn about the coronavirus pandemic just by looking at how we lived our lives. Everybody you know, is affected by the time in which they live. And it's a really interesting lens through which we can observe history. And it's much more personal, it's much more intimate, rather than doing a kind of top-down look at what history is, you know. So the way it's often, it has often been taught in schools to people, which puts people off is, well, let's start with the laws and let's start with the kings and the queens and parliament and war, and then maybe trickle down to, you know, what an ordinary person may have experienced. You know, we need to look at it from the, the ground up because that's the only way history is really gonna be very, uh, very much of interest to us. That's what I've always loved about Howard Zinn 
uh, who you know wrote the People's History of uh, the United States of America, which was you know as as a uh, historian from uh, reasonably deprived background went through the war, then got used the uh, uh, got I forget what it's called now the thing you could get basically once you'd fought for, for you, you would you would get a bit of money which meant you could go off and explore something. And he thought, hang on a minute, no one writes the history of the people; they write the history of the generals. Yeah. Um, so many other things are going on and there's so many and I mean we even see that now in contemporary society but that before it's even become history you think of the the huge swathes of people who in the 1970s there were far more tv documentaries and tv shows that documented every you know more people in society whereas now it's far more regimented Mm, mm, yeah definitely I, I think it's it's a trend I think we need to get away from because I see in what I've experienced it actively puts people off engaging with history because it is you know people that well what does this have to do with me and i think that's a really valid question to ask what does it have to do with you and in fact the reality is a lot of the laws the great laws that were passed and the things that happened in in the past did not affect people's day-to-day lives that much so what why are we why are we studying that if we're looking into we're trying to understand the evolution of nationhood and um, governance and this sort of thing. Well, yeah, absolutely focus on that. But for most of us, where history is relevant is how did our lives, how did our daily lives evolve? Why are we where we are now? Why do we think what we think? What, you know, all of these ingrained beliefs that we carry with us need to be questioned. And we can begin that process by trying to understand where the origins of these things came from. And that is often through our daily life and understanding the daily lives of those who came before us. It's interesting. When I was reading The Five, it reminded me, in fact, a lot of it reminded me of things like the novels of Zola. There was uh, the one which is, it's normally called L'Assommoir, I think, because I think it translates just as The Boozer. And so Penguin Modern Classics, we can't just call a Zola novel The Boozer, we'll have to call it L'Assommoir. But that one is, again, where it takes you through, uh, do you know that story at all? I don't. It's a a story which starts... It's one of those books, you know, where the first 50 pages is fine and then about page 60 you go, there's 400 pages to go and I don't think it's going to get better for anyone. It's like Requiem for a Dream or something like that going, well, I'm I'm stuck in the story now, but I don't think there's going to be any lights to be seen. And it, it is just... It's about a seamstress who, due to a single accident involving her husband slowly loses everything and, and like the, some of the stories in this book you just see how one one accident and we still see this now of course you know that leads to homelessness and all those things one change in your luck if you have no support system behind you and that's what I thought was so interesting is I think that so many of the stories you tell in this book which are now historical stories were stories that I first would have come across from novels of the 19th century yeah, and it, it, it give, it's very interesting because it demonstrates just what it was that people like Dickens were writing about, and uh, um, and Dickens and Hardy, and um, and their commentary about society and about where people can end up. You know, one wrong step, um, and and you know, obviously, people like Dickens are, are commenting about their era, but often I think we spend so much time looking at fiction to present us with a picture of what a particular era was like and especially like somebody like Dickens um you know seems to the the 19th century the Victorian era seems to be categorized just seems to be um what colored 
by all of his books. So when we think of the Victorian era, we think of Dickens before we actually think of the real history. And I think, so it's funny what you're saying, because it's kind of, it's a sort of backward approach to the Victorian era, is to understand it through its fiction rather than through through the actual history, through the fact. Mm, no, that's it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? But then again, I suppose that might be because like ideas of science and philosophy and psychology, there was a period of time where it wasn't in the non-fiction. The people exploring it were all sneaking it in through 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 fiction. But then you're right. Then we see far more Mr. McCorbers than there probably actually were wandering through the streets. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, and I think quite a lot. And, I mean, this is one of the, the ways in which I think Jack the Ripper and his crimes have been have have been mythologized is that it starts to become rolled up in our understanding of the late 19th century which is very much part of Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and you know Dracula and this this resurgence of the the, the kind of late 19th century gothic and um and and I think because of that you know the Ripper murders all are sort of seen as part and parcel of that type of phenomena and so we have this way of fictionalizing the past which i think is very very dangerous and in fact um you know i think television and hollywood really haven't necessarily done us very much very many favors because whenever we think of depictions of the 19th century we think of dickens adaptations for television and jane austen you know these two people are telling us what the 19th century experience was all about and many people don't ever reach beyond that for their reference points it's interesting i can see on your bookshelf some of your books and i see you have a copy of alan moore's from hell uh reference yes and and now now that to me was uh i i find very it was turned into a film not very well because they turned it basically into a film which is just really about jack the ripper and about taking laudanum Whereas I find that I, I was just interested in your opinion on From Hell because I, for me, what was most interesting about that that work is it's a it's a big historical work. There's so much going on in it about the society itself. Mm. Well, I've looked at it as a graphic novel. I I can't bring myself to watch the film because I just I think the thing is the more it never appealed to me to 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 watch it as a film until I started doing work on the subject and then the more I learned about the subject the less interested I was in watching the film um but as a graphic novel I think it's fascinating and yes it does raise um a lot of really interesting questions you know and it does touch on the living conditions of the time and um but all within you know I must say a conspiracy theory which unfortunately this whole area is just plagued with you know it's 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 wrapped up in a packaging of conspiracy theory which is totally unnecessary and and part of the reason why I think historians real trained historians have never touched it before or cultural historians have investigated it but actual historians haven't actually gone back and really looked at what sort of documentation still exists to tell us about these crimes and about the people involved in them and how can we look at this through a historical lens um because you know it's it's been viewed as a type of pseudo history well what was the first reaction when you started telling people about what you were working on i presume a lot of people would have just said oh you're doing a jack the ripper book that would be the yeah i mean i i had to I felt it in the first instance a little bit apologetic about about that. You know, well, look, you know, I, I'm writing a book about the victims. I mean, it was easy because it's quite 
quite a kind of nice, nifty, crisp little elevator pitch, which is I'm writing the first biography of the five victims of Jack the Ripper, which is not has nothing to do with their deaths and their killer. Um, and is just about their lives and just looks at their lives. And that's that's interesting. I think I think people were convinced that that was a legitimate line of inquiry. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of people were still sort of turning their nose up at it. And, you know, and I know that even up, you know, when I was nominated for the Bailey Gifford Prize last year and, and won it, and there were still people who were saying, oh, I don't want to read a book about Jack the Ripper. And, you know, it's not about Jack the Ripper, actually. It's a way of investigating the lives of poor, mar- marginalised women in the 19th century. Do you think... Do, do you, can you get any sense of why... There, there does seem to be a change now in terms of... I think about the, the, the recent film that was made about Dennis Nielsen and there was a far greater focus, especially afterwards in terms of, of background documentaries which were looking at the lives of, of the young men who, who became his victims. A, a recent book about Sandy Hook where the author decided to barely mention, he didn't mention the name of, uh, of, of the killer and in it, it was a book about the kids and their reaction to it and those and it does seem that there is a broadening out. Do you get that sense or is that a, a false hope from me? I think it I think it's shifting and I think it's I'm really pleased that it is and there was a fantastic documentary that was on um and I'm trying to remember if it was beginning of this year I think it may have been the beginning of this year about the Yorkshire Ripper which you may have seen about um you know investigating it um and and really looking at the victim situation and uh and the the circumstances their families found themselves in and 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 just inverting the story so i i i'm i'm pleased to see us moving away from the glorification of the serial killer though i still think you know there is a real morbid interest in serial killers and and you know and actually you know i mean and i think it is important also to say this which is trying to understand what makes somebody commit heinous crimes like that is, you know, it's very legitimate. I think that's a, you know, that that's, I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing for people to be interested in because it is fascinating and is it about, and it is about human psychology and, and there's something really basic in us that wants to feel protected from that. So we can identify those characteristics and steer clear of them. Um, but I think too much of an emphasis is is unnecessary. Uh, and um, and I'm glad, you know, people are sort of waking up to this a bit, that, you know, we can move on from telling this story this way now. Did you... How difficult was it? Because I, I, I think, you know, with each chapter... You kind of, I, I would be sitting there and then I think I'm waiting for the turn of events. I'm waiting for a turn of events where someone is doing fine. They're living in a nice Peabody house or they've, you know, they've moved out to the country and all these things are looking good. And it is, I mean, in terms of the vivid nature, not merely of the, the, the surroundings and the culture, but the, the, the vivid picture you create of these people's lives and the ultimate knowledge of their destiny is... Uh, is I, I think very you know emotionally it's extremely powerful. Did you find at times today I just can't write? Or... Yeah, oh god, yeah, absolutely. This was, I mean, getting myself 
into the right state to write this. I mean, I realized at, from the outset I was going to have to go to some pretty dark places and I was going to have to be comfortable with being there. And But, you know, quite often, I mean, I, I did have to stop. I did. I did have to stop and pull back. And it was too much and I'd have to take some time off um, because it was, it was pretty relentless. And you realize how little hope some of these people had. I mean, I, I felt that way, especially I think for Kate Eddowes, who I think her, I think the cards are really stacked against her being born into that enormous family. Um, you know, I think, you know, family size at that time really, really determined one's ability to get out of the poverty trap. And, you know, she was one of 12 children I mean, there was just, there was going to be no way out. And for women, it was this relentless cycle of bearing children, really until you died, in many cases, or, you know, and you were just so physically wrung out from the process of constantly being pregnant, constantly having children, and having to work at the same time, uh, and living in terrible conditions. And then, you know, you get to kind of 17, 18, 19 and then suddenly your life becomes your mother's life. And then you're popping out babies and your your financial situation is 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 diminishing with each arrival of each child and you know, and just, just the fatalism of that and how depressing that is. And then we're talking about generations and generations and generations of people who live that way. It just seems like there's no hope at all. What was for you the 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 biggest revelation in terms of understanding nineteenth century society and understanding the the lives of such an enormous number of people? I mean, the, well, the revelation actually. I mean, I, I think I knew all of this stuff, but then you're very you're reminded in a very immediate type of way when you're working with the material all the time and you're you're connecting the dots and looking at a larger panorama and and you said in what you just asked me you know the reality for a large amount of people well that's it so you realize this is actually the story of the victorian era it's not what people in the nice houses were doing it's not queen victoria it's these people because they were the majority of the population. This is how the majority of Britain lived. Hand to mouth, uh, exhausted, exploited, um, bleak existence. Um, and, um, and, you know, really through first part of the 20th century as well. Um, and that that's pretty startling because, you know, again, we were talking about perceptions of the Victorian era versus the reality, you know, um, and the reality is and was brutal for these people. It's interesting. There was a, a, a Ken Loach documentary, Spirit of 45, which is uh, about the building of the welfare state and those people who came out of the Second World War. And and I think, you know, same the turn of the 20th century, you know, even then where the, the very elderly people being interviewed and they talk about the death of, you know, their brothers and their sisters, the inability to afford doctors. And, and the, the, I wondered how many people have reacted to this book in terms of it also being a warning of the possibility of a future as well, which... A hundred percent. 
I mean, you know, it's really interesting because, um, you know, obviously the Labour Party was born, I think, 1900. Um, and um, there was a really, really um, amazing book that was written um, that I'm surprised it's, I mean, it is a classic, but only in very, very small circles. But it's one of the most beautifully written books I have come across called In Darkest England and the Way Out um, by William Booth. And um, I mean, just so beautifully written. And it is about homelessness in London and poverty in London. And he walked along the streets um, in, I think it was 1890. Uh, and he documented all of the people sleeping rough and asked them questions about their lives and why they were there and followed them and it's so beautifully written and it's so heartbreaking and that book was hugely formative in um influencing the development of the welfare state so you know all of this stuff you know people were taking note of this and it did you know have an impact on the welfare state in the 20th century what came out of that um so I mean, it's you know I think again, you know we have this 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 sense you know all the people were suffering and you know and it was really terrible but you know there were it's also important to say that although there was no I mean the, the safety net which was there which was the workhouse wasn't really a very great safety net at all because it was there to kind of punish you if you went into the workhouse it was deeply deeply shameful um and they made you know they fed you terrible food and you got sick and it was full of vermin but by the late 19th century you know there there was this huge flowering of charitable organizations and the middle classes, uh, the upper classes were pretty determined to do something to help people's lot. And there were possibilities to help people out of poverty. And people did start to come out of the poverty trap, the po this, this, this vicious circle. Um, but it took a long time before this was actually legislated, you know, before we really see it develop into something which comes from the government and comes from uh, you know, becomes the welfare state, and really, I think I, I would I would challenge anybody to read my book and not come out of it being a supporter of the welfare state. We need some sort of safety net that isn't punitive for people who find themselves in very difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's what I find worrying is the return to that narrative that people get what they deserve and you make your own luck and blah 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 and that's a very dangerous thing um the uh, final question did you know or were you aware at what point did you become aware of what a viper's nest it is to walk to go into the world of uh, as it's known you know ripperology i think when we met at five by 15 uh you were you were just talking in the green room about the fact that you know almost every single event there's some people Men, I think almost all, always men, I, I think I might be wrong there, but scribbling notes and then sending you things. Going, well, actually, you know, this, this, it, it, it seems to be a very strange thing to treasure, to treasure Jack. The, and it does seem to be treasured to treasure Jack the Ripper and, and, and his story. And yeah, I just wondered if you'd known how much kind of you'd have to deal with that. No, is the answer. I mean, I knew I knew they were a very difficult bunch. I had been forewarned um, 
but I hadn't anticipated to this degree. And I mean, these are people who are absolutely wedded to the legend of Jack the Ripper. And there are lots of different reasons for this. And I mean, I think that really surprises me. It's kind of taken me on this kind of journey of discovery as, as all of this stuff unfolded, which is, you know, why are these people behaving this way and, and, and coming to some sort of realization about it? Um, in many cases, not surprisingly, these are men um, and um, who have devoted years, if not decades in some cases, of their lives to studying this material. I mean, none of them are historians. None of them have any historical background at all. They're, you know, it's it's a pursuit, it's a hobby. And they all get together and they talk amongst themselves and they self-publish books and they all read each other's books and they reinforce legends. They don't know how to do research. They don't know, they don't really seem to understand about context. They think in terms of this is like solving a crime and they're looking for nuggets of truth. They talk about truth. You know, this is, we, you know, truth and facts. Well, facts and truth are nothing if there's no context, if you don't understand where this has come from or, or you know, what, what, what militates against this or, you know, what undermines this. And, um, and so... As a woman coming in and an outsider of this, this kind of charmed circle, coming in and saying, actually, everything you thought you knew about Jack Ripper is actually wrong, and I'm an outsider and I found all this stuff, they were absolutely berserk. They were berserk because it's an attack on their ego. It's, an it's telling them that, you know, this thing that they've prided their identities on is, is meaningless now. You know, it's kind of like the little child saying the emperor has no clothes. Um, and, and of course, I mean, just like no amounts of, of bile were reserved. Uh, you know, they just threw it at me in buckets. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm like the sort of ripperology version of Carol Baskin. And the Lion King, uh, the <laughs> the um, Tiger King, um, you know, it, it's just I am the evil, evil witch who is destroying this pastime for these men. What is what is the is the one main point of meaning for them that has been lost? Then what what is the the, the predominant sense of of because I find it all very confusing not being in this world and when you get a, the sense of a predominant meaning that might come from a a, a, a story which has so much grotesquery as this it, it kind of I find it I think I might even find it alarming I might even go that far but what, what is that that sense of, of a particular sense of meaning they feel that you've taken away from them well first of all there's like people in ripperology agree on nothing okay but the one thing they do agree on the one that sort of linchpin and everything is that Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes and this this backs up a lot of you know prejudice and misogyny and but it also holds in place a lot of these pet theories and all of them will have theories so if i kick that down then there's nothing and the the way in which i've kicked this down is that is to say i mean quite literally the documentation is not there it's just not there most what most people don't realize about the story is that you know they and, and for, for a group of people talk so much about facts um most of the actual documentation is missing and a lot of the stories you know witness statements and and all sorts of things like that come from newspapers because the actual inquest documents are not 
there. And so the questions I've been asking is, well, sorry, but there are no facts. This is, you know, you, you cannot just say this happened without, you know, documents to back this up. And they cannot compute this. It's just because what I've actually done is created an existential threat to their entire hobby. So I've said this is irrelevant. This is, you know, all this postulating about who Jack the Ripper was and all this stuff and all this time you've spent 30 years looking into this stuff. You've wasted it because you're never going to find anything out and there's nothing to find out because it's not there. And that is, you know, I mean, that is like an earthquake for them. Yeah, always it's a warning to everyone. Broaden your interests. Don't, <laughs> don't nail them all to one post. That's uh have you uh, are you allowed to say about what you're working on now? Have yeah. You, uh... Yeah, I'm um so I'm staying in true crime and uh I'm looking at the murder of Bill Elmore by Dr. Crippen in nineteen ten. Um and again, such an interesting story. Um, really, I mean, if you pull him out of the center, this is an entire story which can be told through the eyes of women. Um, and you get a completely different view of who he was. You know, he was excused. You know, there's so many people, even today, how could this really mild-mannered man, this meek man, have murdered his wife and put her under the under the the bricks in the in the coal cellar how could he have done this he's such a nice man well you know if you actually look at what this man has done and how he behaved to his two wives and then his mistress who he ran off with um you get a pretty good idea but nobody's ever bothered to do that because the Crippen story has always been a story of heroes and villains of inspector dew who catches the you know the fugitive crippen and ethel Lenerve, his mistress who were running away to canada and you know brings him back to trial and the, the hero uh barrister who brings him to justice and he's executed and you know and everything's safe in the world but nobody's actually ever you know taken it out of that 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 template and looked at well who was this person and how, how can we tell this story through another lens it's terrifying the uh thank you so much Ali. the five is now available in paperback and uh um, probably hardback you probably still but get hardback i've got a nice hardback copy got it at that five by 15 event it was a good purchase um and uh, thanks very much for everyone who supports us via uh patreon and uh, hopefully josie will be back with us next week thank you Thank you very much for listening. Remember, you can subscribe at Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles and get extended editions of all the episodes of Book Shambles, plus an uncanny hour, plus lots of other goodies as well. So if you are able to support us, uh, that would be fantastic. Back next week with a new episode. Don't forget to check out the Science Book Shambles episodes as well if you've been missing those on a Tuesday. The most recent episode is with Jan Eleven, who is one of the world's leading experts and researchers on black holes. Have a great week. Stay safe. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Yeah.